I met this six-year-old child with this blank, pale, emotionless face and the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. I spent eight years trying to reach him and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. Welcome to the Final Girls podcast, where we are not the embodiment of evil. Maybe just a little. I'm Anna Bogutska, co-founder of the Final Girls Collective and your podcast host. If you're new to the show, welcome. In real life, the Final Girls put in events and screenings that explore the intersections of horror film and feminism. And on the show, we take a horror trope in depth and throw out a whole season, rip it apart, rummage around in its thematic entrails and figure out why it works, if it holds up and what it says about wider horror culture which is a long-winded way to say that basically we look at horror movies in depth. In this fourth series of the podcast, we are looking at teen horror, how it's evolved, and why teenagers, and especially teenage girls, make some of the most compelling protagonists in the genre. So we are going all the way from the original slasher films of the 70s to the most recent teen horror movies. But before we dive into our film this week, quick reminder, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the Final Ghost UK for updates, event announcements, horror memes. We also have a Patreon where you can support our work, get occasional bonus episodes if I'm not completely drowning in deadlines. And on that note, we are super pumped to announce that we're doing a live podcast recording on the 20th of October at the Prince Charles Cinema in London, we'll be screening the original Scream from a 35mm print and directly following that we'll be recording our episode about that film. It'll be a crossover with my other favorite horror podcast, The Evolution of Horror, where Mike Munzer and myself will be joined by the fantastic Becky Dark on stage to talk about all things Scream. Basically, it'll be a night where Mike and I fight over Becky in public. (laughs) Tickets for this are on sale now and they're already flying. So if you live in London, do come along. I think it's going to be great. It's going to be really good fun. But back to the film today, we are covering one of the OG slashers, the film that confirmed and perfected a lot of the tropes that would become synonymous with the genre. The final girl, the unstoppable killer, the lurking danger in suburbia, the horny teens getting slaughtered, the completely absent parents. Even with all the remakes, reboots and sequels, there is no disputing the influence and importance of John Carpenter and Deborah Hill's Halloween. If you're new to the show and have never seen Halloween before, please know we spoil everything about the movie pretty much from the very beginning. We also kind of spoil Halloween 6, but no one needs to see that really, so I wouldn't worry too much about that. Joining me on this episode is the fantastic Steph McKenna, and with her we talk about our love for Halloween, John Carpenter's music, everything the film did that proved to be so influential for decades onwards and not sure how but we ended up going full valley girl and with all of that said 
please enjoy our take on Halloween. Steph, it's so lovely to have you back on our podcast. How have you been? Anna, I'm good, thank you. I'm really well. How are you? I am slightly sweating because it's been <laughs> unusually hot today. Not on board with this. It's a bit stuffy, isn't it? I'm a bit sweaty, but that was I did a rush home from work, so it was, it's my own doing, really. <laughs> I mean, I, I work from home now, and so I've got no excuse. I was just rushing from... <laughs> One room to the next. Yeah, not even that. Not even that. Um... Before, I mean, before we start talking about Halloween, arguably the teen horror movie. Yes. In all, T. in all of teen horror and in all of horror. Can you try and recap what Halloween is about? Yes. I mean, it's, fortunately, it's a pretty streamlined story. So this time I haven't chosen a film that's like insanely difficult to describe. So, <laughs> so this film. On Halloween night in the town of Haddonfield, 1963, a teenage girl called Judith is stabbed to death by her six-year-old brother, Michael. And 15 years later, in 1978, the evil, the great evil that is Michael Myers, escapes the Smiths Grove Sanitarium, where he has been incarcerated. And he makes his way back to Haddonfield in order to hunt and kill his next victims, who are teenage babysitters. Hot. Dun, dun, dun. some hot shit <laughs> so Steph what is your relationship with Halloween why did you pick it why did I pick it it's such a biggie you know I I mean obviously like everyone I absolutely love Halloween um and I remember watching it in my fairly early teens I want to say probably 14 after kind of being initiated into the world of horror films through 90s teen slashes, of course. So mm-hmm. I started with the later slashes, so Scream, I Know What You Did Last Summer, uh, yes. Legend, remember watching them obsessively, mm-hmm. um, and then kind of worked my way backwards, as you do, as um, well, as a lot of people do as kind of teen viewers. So uh, watched Halloween as kind of the, you know, the granddaddy of the genre. And I know I enjoyed it at the time, but when I was younger, it was definitely more about how far I could push myself in terms of watching something sort of scary or gory or jumpy. So I I think at the time I didn't quite appreciate it as like a an amazing exercise in tension. Um, and it was as I got older that I really began to appreciate it more. And it's kind of within the past 10 years that I really think it cemented itself as one mm. of my favourite films. So it's one of those weird ones that I'd regard as a comfort film. Mm-hmm. Like a horror film that you can watch multiple times a year. Like I think I've probably watched it three times this year. And I love 
I mean, I love the film itself. I also love the story behind it, the kind of, you know, the fact that it was small budget and independent, the sort of the work between Carpenter and Deborah Hill, the, mm. like the masks, the holiday setting, the whole sort of community and legacy around it as well. This whole world that's been built up around it that I absolutely adore. Um, and then, yeah, I guess every few years I kind of end up coming back to it because you get some sort of Halloween adjacent property, you know, something pops up, whether it's like... <laughs> The well, good example is the Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross remix of the Halloween theme that came out the other year. Just mm-hmm. completely obsessed with that. Um, listened to that for ages. Like the 2018 David Gordon Green film. Like these, you know, these these things pop up every few years, and it kind of takes me back to the original. So mm. yeah, just just adore it. Really, it's a it's a slasher film that just will not die. It won't. <laughs> but it's really funny hearing you talk about how you came to it because I think actually I kind of l- came to Halloween ass backwards in a way. <laughs> yeah, did I, you? <laughs> where I had my entry point into horror was Nightmare on Elm Street, and we'll talk mm. about that um, a little bit further in the series. But I knew nothing about that film. It completely blew me away. I was a a, a tiny child. I was like eight or nine when my cousin Whoa, showed me that film. Yes. Like, yeah, a bit, a bit too <laughs> early, so right? Young. I know it explains a lot, though. But let's not get into that. But <laughs> um, but Halloween, I think I actually again as a teenager, same same as you, kind of fell in love with teen slashers of that time oh, all yeah. your screams all that stuff love them and obviously they take so much from this film mm. but i didn't know that so i kind of saw the film's influence by halloween before i ever got yes. to see halloween itself and Absolutely. i think i actually saw some of the sequels before i saw the original yeah that would you end up watching halloween h2o yeah totally yeah. and and i was like oh who the fuck is this but uh, you know when you're kind of seeing the worst versions of mm. a true horror classic but i think my my as i tried to kind of remember i think my entry point was actually carpenter like i had discovered carpenter when i was in in university already and i kind of mm. worked my way through his films and i loved his weirder horror films like in the mouth of madness i think was one of the, the scariest trailers i've ever seen <laughs> i don't think i've seen the trailer for that oh my god like that trailer haunted me for years i was afraid of watching that film and that was my entry point into carpenter and then like worked my way backwards to actually probably one of his most influential films and one of his simplest films as well and similarly to you like I'll revisit it every once in a while and I've done the Halloween marathon and all that jazz but mm. every time I watch it and I rewatched it today before we were gonna record and it's like fucking hell this film is so elegantly made it is isn't it so simple and yet so effective it is amazingly yeah for such a small budget production something that was put together really quickly as well Mm. it's just it is really sleek it's like like minimalist and sleek and yeah i just adore it i think it's oh i just think it's great (laughs) i mean it's like you can really see and trace back to halloween and you know arguably black christmas in many ways and we'll talk about Mm. that as an influence but you can really trace back literally so many tricks and tropes that have then become staples of the horror genre and particularly staples of teen horror as well um so Shall we start there and kind of talk about 
one of the things that made Halloween so original for 1978 when it was released. Yeah. I mean, where it's hard to even know where to begin. As you I say, know. like so many tropes and cliches of teen horror and specifically kind of slashes, which are a very teen adjacent, teen orientated sort of genre, feel like they originate from Halloween. And you mentioned Black Christmas, which was sort of 74, so just beforehand. Mm-hmm. And then you've got Halloween, Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street as this kind of like holy trinity of the slasher. But yeah, with with Halloween, I mean, I mean, firstly, you know, it's as we kind of touched upon, Carpenter managed to do something so tense and disturbing and slick on like a shoestring budget and managed to pump it full of kind of filming techniques and um just like really original ideas that we've seen in you know films for like decades since but for me it's original because it it placed teenagers and teenage girls kind of front and center of this story so mm-hmm. we spend time with Laurie and her friends we get to know them as people and all of their concerns about school and cheerleading and sex and the dance and boyfriends and all of that kind of stuff um but they're also pretty feisty they're kind of you know they might they might be studious and reliable babysitters but they're also sexually active they're smoking mm-hmm. and swearing so it's that kind of like the synergy between sex and violence that feels like a key aspect of the slasher and sort of teen horror in general um and also you were mentioning like you can almost scene by scene with this film mm. it's like you're walking through a film of clichés except they're not clichés because this is where they began so you've got like the girl in the classroom looking out of the window, like Maya's behind the washing line mm-hmm. and then <laughs> disappearing when Laurie looks back and like, you know, I'll be right back. Like the classic lines that, you know, have been sort of um, reused and recycled in Scream and um, all of those kinds of things. I'm trying to think of others, like yeah. the classic post-coital kill of kind of Linda and Bob, the wardrobe hiding scene. Like all of these scenes are like, if you saw them now in a film, you go like, oh, these have been done a thousand times before but this yeah. is where they originated <laughs> and it's uh, it's the stalker pov that really mm. kind of stands out for me which again kind of has been recycled so many times but it's it's kind of staggering i was watching this film today and like actually looking at the running time be like we don't actually get to the lori obsessive murdery yeah. stocky vibe until quite late on like literally till the last 20 minutes but throughout yeah, it is yeah. throughout the entire first half of the film we just see through michael's eyes we just see him stalk her and just look at her and edge in like closer and closer and you know these kind of um <laughs> you know these these memes uh, and videos that circulate on the internet like on instagram and tiktok of where you know you look at like a dog or a cat and they're sort of far away and then the camera moves <laughs> a little bit and then they're a little bit closer yes! and then they're a little bit closer and they're just in your face and yep. they jump in your face <laughs> that's exactly what i was thinking of when i was seeing it it's like it's it so simple but yeah. just because the because it's so clear and because it's like shot in the middle of the day as well, this beautiful leafy mm. suburbia, but the music and knowing what world you're in, like this is a horror film. We've already seen Michael Myers kill a bunch of people, including his own sister. We must yep. go back to that opening. But it's like you're kind of looking around, be like, is he hiding behind that bush? Is he hiding behind that hedge? Is he behind yeah. that car? And you're kind of struggling all the time to see, like, where is he? And I, I just, I even jumped today at the scene where you're kind of freaking out, being like, where the fuck is he? Where is Michael Myers? And yeah. then he just comes into frame, kind of from behind you almost, and just mm. stares at Laurie lo- walk away. 
and it sticks so long in that shot it's terrifying it's like he he was you like you were watching her kind of from his point of view in a way yeah the use of framing in this and yeah it's the point of view perspective isn't it like um and the kind of framing as you say with your you find yourself as an audience member searching every frame of this film Mm. to see where he is where he's in the corner it reminds me of um I mean, another, we'll talk about this, I'm sure, but It Follows is another film. Yes. Because, like, it takes from this so much because so you're constantly much. watching everyone walking in the background, like, what is going to happen next? You're yes. sort of on the edge of your seat waiting for that kind of next jump scare. And for me with this film, it's it's not actually about the jump scares. It is that horrible tension Mm. it's that rise and fall of tension the whole time where you feel like you're being led into a dangerous situation and then sometimes it kind of drops off so you know there's the the bit where michael myers is um stalking the young boy what's his name bobby is it when Mm -hmm. he's at school he's kind of curb crawling him you think oh my god something awful is going to happen and then he dries off Mm -hmm. or you know laurie answers the phone and you there's no one on the end of the line you think oh my god he's you know he's called her up he's prank calling her on the phone Mm -hmm. and then it's annie like it's like a a constant rise and fall um and uh, as you say like a lot of it's happening in the daytime as well Mm -hmm. so a good i don't know probably half of this film is happening on a really sunny day in a beautiful suburban neighborhood Um, and these people are going around you know living their lives and they feel perfectly safe and secure and happy and there's this absolute evil lurking within behind them behind every hedge it's just yeah and we have to talk about that opening since we're talking about pov shots and the, Mm. the kind of the first bit of of halloween is michael myers first murder when he was a a baby serial killer He's a tiny, tiny boy. Yeah, it's, I mean, and again, you jump straight into it. Like this mm-hmm. film is so, um, I keep saying slick. I don't mean slick, but, you know, within the first kind of five, 10 minutes, everything is laid out and established for you. Mm-hmm. And that amazing first scene in, yeah, Halloween night, 1963, where you're seeing the events unfolding through an unknown person's eyes. Mm-hmm. And I think your gut instinct is to assume that you're, it's like, basically a pervy older guy i think when i first watched it i was like who is this absolute old man creep watching these poor teenagers have sex and then you're you know led through the house um through all of these safe spaces you know into the kitchen into the living room um through this person's uh through this mask i think he puts on the mask doesn't he so yeah mask as well um before the big reveal at the end and it's it's terrifying because it's like oh not only have we just seen a girl get stabbed, but also she's been stabbed by a little boy dressed as a clown, might I add, just like layering on <laughs> the, the weird vibes. Um, and also just this completely expressionless little boy. And then it kind of makes it both less and more terrifying for me, because then when we're introduced to Michael Myers escaping, we don't really see his face, we just see his silhouette, he grabs the mask pretty early mm. on. Mm. Um, but our only image of him is this, that little boy dressed up with a bloody knife in his hand and kind of completely vacant. I don't know about you, but I found it like quite chilling, because even conceptually, then you just continuously think of that little boy who just only only wants to stab people to kill people like there's no reason there's no deep psychology 
there's no and it, it's kind of uniting that thing of like oh little kids are supposed to be our markers of innocence mm. but this little kid out of nowhere and absolutely for with like zero expression or expression of remorse or even of of desire to murder just keeps just wants to keep on killing yeah he's just like a machine isn't he mm-hmm. and as you see part of the terror there is that he there's there's no motive behind it there's no reason behind it he's literally murder murdering his sister at home whilst his parents are away there's it, it doesn't make any sense we it's not explained to us it's basically a mystery why he is the way he is um and he's he's born and he's growing up and living in this perfectly well-adjusted lovely middle-class american society mm-hmm. so you know somehow this monster has been born in amongst them and they've created it and it's kind of like where where has he come from what have you done <laughs> and let's stick on michael myers and kind of talk mm. about him once he reemerges kind of as an adult and he escapes from from the the mental institution where mm. he's been um held for literally his entire life mm. and once we kind of start seeing him around his image has now become so iconic but it's it's ex- it was extremely deliberate by Deborah Hill and Carpenter to like design him in the way that he was designed with the bleached William Shatner mask and the yeah. the kind of the <laughs> the blue workman uh, like workers boiler suit that he's wearing mm-hmm. um so what do you think about the way he moves like the the presence of him like the design of him why is it so scary i know it, it it's a little bit tough because now we've had over 30 years of michael myers content yeah yeah it's yeah it's kind of again it's kind of the the simplicity of it um and as you say it was this this captain kirk mask that they've modified and sort of stretched the eye holes and altered its hair and it was like a two dollar mask or something Mm -hmm. from a costume shop but it's just it's the blankness it's you've got as you said you've got the child who was kind of blank stony faced vacant eyes and then you've put this mask over him and he's kind of completely faceless and there's almost no detail to him and in fact i don't think you even see the mask itself properly for quite a long time it's like a good hour i think the first time you see it sort of in any kind of detailed way is Mm. when um he's stalking annie so there's just so much of about him that feels like an empty space to me does that Mm. make sense it's kind of it's not even a him it's an it like loomis refers to him as it and yes you know the evil it isn't a man like he's not a human being he's not the human beings that we would recognize he's Mm. just this kind of faceless void of evil um yeah yeah. because loomis loomis talks about him in almost like not supernatural ways but kind of like he calls him the embodiment of evil but because there's nothing there like there's no reaction there's nothing to psychoanalyze um he's like talking to michael myers is like talking into the abyss yeah i think he's like no conscience no reason that kind of thing there's it is like you're looking at if you're looking at him i don't know you just you're looking at him and there is nothing there there's nothing left and it's it's it's, it's really funny because like even in the credits of the film he he's not called Michael Myers he's just called the shape oh he's the shape isn't yeah. he Nick Castle as the shape which is and he's so huge he's, he's really huge. big yeah he's big and he's um he he takes his time as well but there's no rushing yes. he's kind of everywhere 
he is always there. He's always just behind you. He always manages to keep up, but he's not, you know, he's not running after you. This isn't like a zombie film, like he's chasing after you high speed. Yeah. He's just, he's just a constant presence. He's always somehow slowly and casually gonna get there. It's slow, but it's relentless. And I, I, I love that you bring that up because like there's this scene towards the end where he's chasing Laurie and she's like rushing out of the house and she's trying to get into her neighbor's house as well and she's rushing and running around like screaming her head off and she's he's pegging just, it isn't she and he's, and he's just, just leisurely yeah. strolling towards her absolutely not a sing, not a spring in a step at all he's like no. taking a sweet time and still remains terrifying because even though he looks like he's not gonna catch up he slowly starts inching towards her which is exactly the same kind of fear that it follows um mm. uses as well where it's like they move really really slowly but they just won't stop so eventually they will get because the victim or the person that they're trying to chase will have to stop at some point but they won't right. like you you will tire out you'll need to stop or you'll run out of places to hide and somehow he's always it's that supernatural quality again isn't mm -hmm. it like somehow he's always going to know where you're trying to hide or where you're running to and he's always going to catch up with you i think i've creeped myself out a little bit now just talking <laughs> about it <laughs> And I actually read that Nick Castle, who who plays him in the film, was like, all the direction that he was given was, go from this point to this other point, <laughs> do this. Like, there's no, you know, method acting on his part. Like, mm -hmm. I think both Hill and Carpenter deliberately tried to direct him in a way where he was as l inhuman as possible, mm -hmm. just mm -hmm. functional and relentless, like some sort of weird killing machine yeah you're right yeah it is like that's his one it's his one mission in life doesn't need mm. to eat doesn't need to sleep he just gets on with the killing but, e uh... even though like i i did want to ask you like there is there's so much faff i think made in the coverage of the halloween franchise and especially mm. now because we're kind of you know less than a month away from the new halloween being mm. released halloween kills um and the latest thing i haven't watched any trailers i don't want to i don't want to watch any trailers for halloween kills i just want to watch the film but i saw the headline of like michael myers is unmasked in the new trailer for halloween kills and i was thinking i like he was a mask in the first film why is this a big yeah. deal now yeah and and I do find it really interesting, like how so many of the films make such a big deal about what's behind the mask. But mm. I find that the moment where his mask is sort of briefly ripped off in this film, it it really doesn't matter. Like it adds absolutely nothing. Like it's completely vacant underneath yeah. the mask. It really is, isn't it? It's oh yeah. I almost forget when I watch the film actually that there is a moment of unmasking at the end mm. because, as you say, it kind of. It's not really a big reveal. It doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. So I, I occasionally kind of I forget that that's coming. And then it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, she does pull the mask off at the end. And, yeah. then, and he's kind of the same underneath. <laughs> he's just humorless and blank. And yeah, there's and just nothing there. We've spoken a little bit about kind of like, we'll, we'll talk more about the films that it influenced. But mm. can you see kind of influences from previous horror films that Carpenter has taken and kind of infused in, in Halloween. I guess Psycho gets brought up quite a lot, doesn't it? So Psycho's sort of seen as the first, like, really early example of a slasher film, and it, it's got mm -hmm. the kind of disguise mask killer that's sort of stalking people. So you can kind of see 
the psycho influence and I can definitely see the Black Christmas influence that's mm. that's the one for me that I think about a lot and that has sort of that feels like it has a lot of some of the elements that Halloween sort of takes and runs with so the the stalking of the female victims it's the kind of like it's coming from within the house the first person perspective those mm-hmm. kinds of things and it's got like the the POV shots are very mm, jalo as well yeah. I don't yes. know if you're a fan but like they love a POV shot especially from the killer's point of view when he's mm. like stabbing some women but I do love the story. I wrote about this and I hadn't heard about the story until I, I was researching the piece that um, Carpenter actually had a phone call with Bob Clark. The, oh, yes, I heard, I read about this. Yeah, yeah, the director of Black Christmas. And he was like, so what would happen in a sequel if you were to make a sequel, mate? You know, not for anything, <laughs> but, you know, what would just, happen? Yeah, just wondering. <laughs> no, no reason. Just uh, how would you do this? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And apparently he and he's quoted like this is on the record. He's quoted as saying this. Bob Clark said like it would be the next year and the guy would have been caught, escaped from a mental institution, go back to the house <laughs> and they would start all over again. Ah, okay. So that's kind of the plot of Halloween. Does Bob Clark get any kind of royalties for this film? That's... I'm not sure. <laughs> I think he gave you the idea there. I know, but like, I love the fact that these films are connected, like stylistically, but also mm. that the filmmakers spoke to each other and yeah. were very open uh, about how they had that conversation and how the films speak to each other. Because it was only yes. only a few years later, and Carpenter was nowhere near the first choice for directing this film either Mm. oh i don't i don't think i don't think i even realized that he wasn't like a first choice i know he was kind of approached over it and it was a you know kind of pitched as an idea to him and that he originally kind of wanted to make a a haunted house film which i think he gets Mm. the haunted house in there anyway there's definitely yeah the myers house is definitely a haunted house but um it's got that haunted house vibe yeah but i do love the fact that um halloween never well in this film at least you know we're not going to talk about halloween six where the runes and (laughs) shit come up but um it kind of always skirts around the supernatural there's Mm. nothing supernatural in it except you know arguably michael myers who just seems unkillable and unstoppable yeah Yeah. it's like the only the only way to rationalize what he's doing Mm. you know saying like well there must be something supernatural about him because like someone can't be shot six times and then fall out of a window and then get away with it but um but as you say yeah there's nothing overtly supernatural happening there and there's no explanation for it and the other kind of connection that again is very obvious but i also quite love is the fact that you know you mentioned psycho mm. which obviously oh, of course yes stars <laughs> Yes, that's quite a big. Uh, that's quite a big one, isn't it? It's quite a big one, yeah. But um, Janet Lee obviously is um, Jamie Lee Curtis's mum, yeah. and she was a she was a really big star at that time. So it was a really big thing that she was bill had top billing in Psycho, and then you know was killed off after the first thirty minutes. Yeah, but Jamie Lee, this was essentially her first role. It's definitely her breakout role as Laurie Strode. Um, what did you make of, of her? I mean, the irony kind of of Laurie Strode being the final girl when, of course, her mother didn't make it through Psycho. Mm. Is, uh, yeah, amazing. I mean, yeah, well, I, I should have mentioned the final girl earlier, actually, as one of the, you know, huge, very important kind of classic elements of this film. Um, I love Laurie Strode so much and 
I think in many ways she kind of fits the when you read like the early definition of what a kind of final girl is supposed to be she does you know in a lot of ways she fits that she's kind of this when we meet her she's got her kind of school books and her cardigan Mm -hmm. and she's kind of sexless in that she's not overtly sexy um she's shy around boys she's kind of she's very dependable like you know she's the dependable babysitter she's very mature guys think she's too smart to date she's you know this sort of really of of her friendship group she's kind of plain and sensible um she's she's a good girl from the friendship group like she's 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 kind of made fun of by her friends for sort of you know not being as sex obsessed as they are pretty mean to her (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there's yeah. poking, there's poking fun, and then there's like really going to town on it. They are a little bit, yeah. They call her like the old Girl Scout, don't they? And kind of, they're they're poking fun. And you're right, like she she does. I think like she pretty much establishes the blueprint for the archetype of the final girl. Like everything you've just said, kind of the weird and androgyny that kind of comes through in her name as well. Um, the 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 kind of sexless vibe the fact that she's not she's like the good girl from the group and and the other thing as well is like she's she's kind of not special except for the fact that she is the other sister of michael myers Mm. right so she Mm. kind of needs to be killed but she's also left for last she's not the first one that he tries to murder despite the fact that he she's ultimately his goal yeah yeah and it's is I guess I was trying to think like why is she well we do know later obviously like siblings there is a you know a connection there but it's like why specifically in this is she Mm. the girl is it because you know as a boy he killed his sister did he kill her because she was busy having sex when she should have been looking after him and is that you know coming into play again is he going after you know the babysitters that are sleeping around and (laughs) hooking up with their boyfriends when they should be looking after children and she's kind of you know i try and make sense of that or what a, work what a what slut shamey little boy i know, I know. <laughs> but that's basically what it is it's like weirdly psychosexual but also yeah like absolute slut shamer but it mm. is this kind of logic of like you know is the final girl left because she's the one with the kind of you know the moral superiority she's mm-hmm. not having sex she's you know not like her other friends who are like super loose and like hang on, you know whatever mm. but at the same time laurie isn't having sex but and she is you know mature and dependable and intelligent and um pretty savvy but she's also smoking weed in the car Mm -hmm. she's got her eye on a boy like she does think about things like that she's just got a lot on at the same time but she kind of i don't know and she's not an for me she's not entirely a good girl she she actually she reminds me of me when i was younger (laughs) in that i was like i do actually want the boy but you know he's just not looking at me and you know yeah i am you know, I'm pretty studious and I'm pretty, but, you know, I've got other stuff yeah. going on as well. I just haven't quite had the opportunity for it yet. But she's also got that thing where, similarly to Michael, like she's the perfect counterpart because she is resourceful and mm-hmm. relentless. Like she, she just keeps going. She just keeps going. She just keeps running. And like, we kind of have to talk. I mean, Jamie Lee Curtis has been a long-standing fave of mine. This is definitely not the first film I saw her in, but... Every time I revisit her sort of work in horror, there is mm. such an earnestness that comes through. Like, yeah. obviously, she's incredibly young in this. So she fits this kind of, se- you know, late 70s teenager aesthetic and vibe perfectly well. 
And as Laurie develops as a character, and I love her in in Halloween too as well, Mm. like she does build on Laurie and everything that happens to her. So I think she, even from the first moment we see her, we never really... I never get the sense from Jamie Lee that she ever approached this role or this film in particular with any sort of derision towards genre or the role. Um, it was always like with the, with kind of the utmost earnestness about mm. whether they're to do and why Laurie is kind of, like you said, there's nothing really super special about her, which I kind of love. Um, mm. She is kind of marked by Michael Myers, but she didn't choose that. She just nice. wants to go about her day, do her work, get the boys, smoke some weed, like be a teenager. All yeah. this like massive slasher tra- trauma that's inflicted upon her. Um, She has to deal with it, but there's kind of nothing really special really about her, no. which I yeah. love. Yeah, exactly. And the film really does spend quite a lot of time with her, getting Mm. to know her. Like, we've got all of those scenes where she's moving around the neighbourhood, talking to her friends, you know, picking up, dropping off her dad's keys. Like, we we really get kind of, like, quite a built-up picture of her as a normal teenage girl. Mm. Um, And, yeah, and as you say, like, as time goes on, she has to um, put her kind of resourcefulness and her savvy to the to the test she's kind of and she builds as a person and becomes a stronger person but she's yeah she definitely didn't set out on this path although it sounds as if you remember the bit where she's in the classroom and they're they're doing a lesson I mean two things actually in that a she's able to stare out of the window and pay absolutely no attention but when the teacher calls on her she knows the pitch perfect answer which I'm always like damn this girl's really clever um yeah that that was me in high school I was was like absolutely paid no attention but i'll always have the answer you always got the textbook answer well done sassy um <laughs> if i was a teacher i'd be like god damn it oh my god How i used to do that Try i and used catch you to out? do the most horrifically obnoxious thing oh you little <laughs> shit I, you? I was a little shit i used to like have a i used to have like quite long hair for most of my te- for most of my childhood and teenage years and um, I'd like hide a one one single earbud <laughs> up my, up my shirt and through my hair and into one of my ears, and I would just always be listening to music while the lectures or the classes was on. Oh my god, listen to music while but also able to answer every question that was thrown at you. Cocky little shit. Anna, you're too cool. That's fine. <laughs> I love that. No, I, love I was that. a little shit. That's what I was. You little shit. No, I'm. <laughs> But you're pretty smug about it. I could tell. No, I think that's good. <laughs> um, uh, my other point was yeah. that um, they're, they're learnt in that conversation that the lesson they're talking all about fate and how people mm-hmm. are brought together and it's mm-hmm. fate that they're brought together. So yeah, again, there's this almost like a supernatural kind of these two people being brought together and you know th- there's nothing that Laurie could have done about it mm. because this was just destiny for her. Sorry. <laughs> That's true. So she is kind of special, but in a way yeah. that she doesn't really want to be. No, exactly. And you mentioned at the start that you love as well the story about how it was made. Um, what about it like stands out to you? I don't know. I I think I've got a soft spot for the fact that it was um, like a really, as you say, it was like a, you know, Carpenter was kind of a big sci-fi fan, big Western fan, and he was asked to make this kind of low-budget, quick-win horror film about babysitters, you know, being menaced by a stalker. Um, and he, I really like the fact that he agreed to direct this film 
only if he could have kind of full creative control. So, you know, writing, directing, scoring, everything had to be on his terms, which I kind of really love. Um, he made it for like a, a tiny amount of money and his relationship with Deborah Hill as well. I really mm. liked So he was dating. That was his then girlfriend, Deborah Hill. And she, she spent a lot of time working on um, like the script for the, the dialogue for the, the teenage girls yeah, in the film, so which she, I think really comes across. Totally. Yeah. So she, she, I think wrote the original story um, mm. and like did all the dialogue and I think Carpenter was kind of incapable of writing for teenagers or teenage <laughs> like, girls. I don't know girls. Yeah. I don't know girls. Fair I'll enough. do Loomis. You do, yeah. <laughs> yes, I'll do the creepy therapist who's obsessed yeah. with this with this man child <laughs> who loves to stab people. You do the you do the normal people. Yeah, you do the teenage girls. And I I know for some people, maybe these teenage girls are a bit annoying when they're together, but I have a real affection for them, okay? I think they're great. All teenage girls are annoying when they're together. They're so annoying. Of I'm course sorry, we guys, are. but I was literally talking like this as a child. Well, not of a child, course. but a teenager. Yes. Obsessing like, about, yeah. Good just... for Deborah Hill. You captured how fucking annoying teenage girls it's, are. It's right. We are really annoying. Like, yeah. totally. Like, or, yeah. Just, oh my god, it's, it's sorry. Like, oh my god, when, are, when are you gonna go all the way? <laughs> that was spot on. Listen, I can only do two accents. One of them is Valley Girl, one of them is Eastern, generic Eastern European. So oh, you, you got the Valley Girl today. <laughs> oh, it's flawless. Let's do the rest of the episode in, va- in our annoying Valley Girl teenage oh my god. girl voices. Laurie. 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 I saw Michael looking at you. Oh my god. (laughs) Laurie, I think he really likes you because he really like has been stalking you for so long. Oh my god. (laughs) I can just hear the listeners just drop off be like, Like, oh I'm turning the volume down like, no, fuck this. This is we're just demonstrating how annoying teenage girls can be. Listen, I'm still... I'm obsessed with teenage girls. I just think teenage girls are the best, okay? They are the best and super annoying. Two things can be true at once. I think it's true. <laughs> Please. <laughs> like, yeah, you were talking about Deborah Hill. Yes. What was I saying about Deborah Hill? Um, she I wrote just, out the dialogue yes, for the teenage she wrote girls. The, that's basically was my point. <laughs> um, <laughs> I just, yeah, I... I really like that. I like, um, I, I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about the music, but again, mm-hmm. I love that he composed the music himself. And again, it feels very minimalist and kind of, I just, I just love the way this came together and that it was like a small budget kind of seat of the pants done in a few weeks kind of thing. It's kind it- of like one of the, I don't think it gets spoken about as a low budget indie horror, but that is effectively what it was. And mm. it's like one of the most amazing examples of what can be achieved with very tight direction um, on a minimal budget. Like, there is not a single wasted moment in this film. And crucially, every single shot and every single like element of the way that everything is framed and shot makes complete sense and adds to the overall dread without having to really, you know, rely on special effects or massive kill scenes. Like the kills are fairly box standard. Like I, I think yeah. Nightmare on Elm Street is much more visually inventive. Yes, but this is yeah. formally very um, precise 
Yes, you're right. It is. It is. It cuts like a knife, yes. like a stalker's knife. It, it does. You're oh, right. Well it's done. kind of. Thank you so much. So much. Um, no, but you're right. Like all of the elements come together, and they are mm. all fairly. I'm not stripped down, but I keep saying minimalist. But it is. It's kind of. It is. It's yeah. like the slotting together of the the filming and the music, and all of these elements combine and work so perfectly together, and. You know, in a tight 90 minutes, we've got the, the the overall structure of the film kind of, as I mentioned before, you get like all of the backstory within kind of five, 10, 15 minutes, you know, like everything's laid out in front of you, you know what's happening. And it just allows the tension to build throughout basically one day. It's kind of that one day mm-hmm. in Halloween, isn't it? So just the, the daytime through to the evening, just, I don't know, it's just perfectly tight. And as you said, it doesn't seem to be a moment that's kind of wasted. Mm. And uh, yeah, and and I wanted to ask as well, kind of on that, we've we've spoken about the the films that it kind of takes from, but mm. where have you seen the influence of of Halloween um, on subsequent horror films? Well, I don't know if you've heard of a film called Scream. Oh, um, I don't think I have. I think I might no, have to no, look it up. No, 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 no. How does it, how yeah. do you spell scream? No, I mean that is a bit of a jump because obviously we had Friday the Thirteenth and Nightmare on Elm Street quite soon afterwards, didn't we? They were only a couple of years afterwards, so they're as I said before, they feel like the kind of the core. They're like the holy triangle of slashes, but then. We've got that whole other cycle that kicks off kind of in the 90s, which are much more kind of self-referential and feature well-known actors. And that's the cycle that I got really into as mm-hmm. a teenager. And you've got I Know What You Did Last Summer and Urban Legend. And they seem to draw, I mean, so much on this film. Um, but then we've also had films kind of recently, like It Follows, which we mentioned David Robert Mitchell, which is mm-hmm. 2014, which feels like the most Halloween-esque I mean, it's one of my favourite films of the last kind of like, I don't know, 15 years or something. I mm-hmm. absolutely love that film, but it feels like it just feels like a complete homage to Halloween in terms of the setting, mm-hmm. the story, the music, everything. Um, and what was the other one I was thinking of? House of the Devil as well, the Thai oh, West yes. film. That feels like it's very influenced by this as well. But I, I mean, I think the key with Halloween really is that it showed that filmmakers and studios that showed sorry the key with halloween really is that it showed filmmakers and studios that hugely effective and successful films could be made on a small budget which is why you know john carpenter is known as sort of like the king of kind of cult filmmaking as well Mm -hmm. is that you can do so much on on so little Mm -hmm. um and his influence has pretty much seeped across all genres of filmmaking but yeah i mean obviously i think primarily of those kinds of slasher films yeah i mean it kind of like not only it kind of really kick-started a whole you know generation of mm. of slasher filmmaking of like hor- of horror filmmaking that centers around teens as well i think that's one of the key things about it for me is that oh yeah you know, of course centering teenagers at the story and them not just being kind of props and that came back full force it kind of exhausted itself in the 80s i think even yes. even halloween became like a franchise that <laughs> went in weird stuffed, directions yeah the 70s and 80s are like stuffed with those films isn't it yeah. you've got like sleepaway camp and 
uh, no, Texas Chainsaw Massacre was earlier, like My Bloody yeah. Valentine and Prom Night and all of these films. And I think I read it was something that like in the eight, sometime in the 80s, like early 80s, it was like 60% of all box office takings that year were for slasher movies or mm-hmm. something. Like those kind of teen orientated, teen marketed films. They were um, huge. Just absolutely exploded. And you can imagine just like thousands of teenagers i mean i would have loved to have gone to the cinema back then to see these films because it would have been such an atmosphere but yeah you're right it was like a it was oversaturated for a time (laughs) yeah like horror had been sort of um seen as schlocky up until that point and then it became massive and super financially successful and then it tired itself out with all the endless franchising and then it it kind of (laughs) the cycle started up again with scream in 96 Mm. which you know will um by the time this goes out this will already be out but we're doing a a uh, a screening of scream in october with a live podcast recording so that will happen that will be amazing to watch on a big screen i've never seen it on a big screen but you can very clearly see the Halloween kickstarted the first slasher craze and mm-hmm. established a lot of rules of the genre in 78 and then Scream really reignited a whole new golden era of teen-centered horror films. Each one of them kind of, you know, from the, the big classics that we love, like Scream and I Know What You Did Last Summer, Urban Legend, all of the holiday themed ones as well mm, of course yeah there's a whole whole subcategory yeah. isn't there of holiday themed films totally and like they they also did the thing that halloween did which is like center on the lives of teenagers and have these not supernatural but unstoppable forces that just keep trying to get at them mm. um obviously scream is probably one of the the best if oh, not so, just one oh, of the best so good I I cannot wait to revisit that franchise, but it's, you know, we haven't really spoken about the music and I think we really need to talk about the music because it is, I mean, I don't know, is it the most iconic um, soundtrack for any horror film ever next to Psycho? I, yeah, it's gotta be, hasn't it? It just, yeah. oh, it's, the music, the music for Halloween is just insane. And again, it's that, it's, it's so few instruments actually being used like Mm. carpenter is very known for his use of synthesizers obviously at this point and he's got his own kind of musical career now as well which he does very similar which i do like actually i'm pretty i'm pretty behind that i really like it i've seen him live he's amazing yeah i bet that was so good it was amazing it was pretty great yeah he just played like like, he had several screens that were um playing like edited versions of his films basically in tune with the with the music that he was playing that was amazing yeah it was pretty great (sighs) yeah he's just but he's a great musician he really is i think Mm -hmm. he grew up kind of you know listening i think his father was a musician or a professor or something so he spent a lot of time you know around music and he composes and performs his own music and this Mm. i I think I read that he the music for Halloween was sort of inspired a bit by Suspiria and The Exorcist and also maybe Psycho was mentioned as well. So um, he sort of cited those as kind of influences. But mm-hmm. the I mean, the, the opening, the main theme, which I mean, I'm no ex- I'm not a musical expert at all. So I, I can't even begin to explain the structure of it. It would be very bad. But it's that kind of it's like a five four meter that's really it's like very very distinctive but doesn't feel right and Mm. it's also the constant for me 
the constant whirring percussion in the background. Do you know what I mean? It almost sounds like um, like an air conditioner or something in the background that's Ooh, like constantly yeah. chugging. And that, if I tune too much into that, it actually makes me feel quite anxious and sick. Like it's, again, it's almost like it mimics Michael Myers in that it's never ending. It just keeps circulating round and round and round and it just really seeps into you <laughs> and is terrifying but yeah introduced this kind of idea of a, a killer having a theme tune as mm-hmm. well which I really loved um and then of course the rest you've got this kind of piano melody and the the synthesizer that's used quite you get these really effective moments like in the opening when the the light is it the light goes off at the opening Judith turns mm-hmm. the light off in the bedroom upstairs and you get that kind of like all is silent and then that like jangly synthesizer suddenly kicks in and makes you yes. jump and the music is so closely tied to the tension in this film um and i know that uh john carpenter had said at some point that he had screened the film and he it didn't have the music with it mm-hmm. and it i think deborah hill had said that it didn't scare her at all and it was only adding the music back in that kind of saved it and made the film scary. So it's scary. So it's so closely. Yeah. The effectiveness of this film is so closely tied to that score. Oh my God. You're so right. And it's still like, even without, even without like what seeing the images, if I hear mm. the, the Halloween soundtrack, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> First of all, I started doing a very bad like synthesizer imitation, like John Carpenter. Just play. doing that. How did you know? Great podcast content, Steph. Um, but just I, like, imagine, <laughs> just imagine us doing a John Carpenter imitation playing the synths. That's yeah. what it looks like. Um, but you know, obviously, much younger, much hotter. Uh, just two but- valley girls playing synthesizer over here. <laughs> exactly that, but. I like I instantly just get into this hunched, you know, place of like, oh fuck, someone's looking at me, someone's hunting me, and it's all in the oh, music. The paranoia so- kicks in. Yeah. It? yeah, you're so right about this being kind of the theme tune for a killer. Mm. I I love it. Like, and also I love the um, how it's influenced what we expect from a horror soundtrack. And obviously, I can like, oh, yeah, I can yeah. see the the goblin esque vibe of it as well, mm-hmm. and the the Argento vibe of it as well. But um, I still like. There's few films that I instantly have this relationship with with the music, where it's like shit. Especially within horror, in particular, mm-hmm. we're quite used to I think like grand melodies and and theme tunes for bigger franchises and films. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. for something to be so iconic of a particular time of a particular era a genre and a specific character killer character all at the same time hot damn john like that's that's a hell of a theme tune yeah he did all right really didn't he yeah (laughs) did good all right yeah he did well done (laughs) well done john (laughs) well done john and (laughs) yeah you did very very well and kind of before we talk maybe very briefly about the sequels and the remakes and stuff Mm. We kind of haven't really talked about Dr. Sam Loomis at all. <laughs> and I feel Lovely like we, Dr. Sam Loomis. We cannot not talk about Dr. Sam Loomis. He is so funny. He is the absolute, <laughs> like, he's the comedy aspect of this film for me. I just think he's absolutely... He's so thing sincere. Is, if, right? If he... if. If Sam Loomis was played by anyone else, I just don't think it would work. But it's because it's Donald Pleasance that it just... It's such a funny mode of... He's 
he's just absolutely hilarious his mode of speaking it's just even from the beginning the way he's just sort of like waving around his hands and running around shouting like the evil is gone like <laughs> he just he's so it's just this absolutely bizarre man who's arrived in town and he's like ordering the sheriff's department around and talking in very dramatic ways about evil and death like he's absolutely batshit but very sincere <laughs> he is so ott like he's, yeah is he is it supposed to be funny? Are the, we supposed to laugh at him? I think he's funny. The thing is, I I don't think it's intentional. I think it's totally <laughs> earnest, but I think it yeah. really, really works. Because y- you can kind of see Loomis as being, by the way, another psycho reference. Um, you know, everybody knows course, this. But yeah. for anyone who, who might not have picked it up, like um, Loomis is also the name of um, Janet Lee's character boyfriend character mm. in Psycho and then becomes the All name of nods. another character okay. in Scream so yeah. we love the Loomis but anyway I think Donald Pleasance who plays him like I think he plays him as a man who has become so obsessed with Michael mm. with figuring him out and is so obsessed with this idea of like f- having found someone who is like he calls him the embodiment of true evil Mm. that he can't let it go like i don't think he actually wants to kill michael i think he just endlessly wants to look into that darkness and be close to it even though he finds it so terrifying so i think that like ott levels of performance actually makes sense with a character like he is not a well man he is not okay yeah he's fully lost the plot a bit hasn't he because he's spent so much time studying this strange inhuman creature um but he's the also the only one that really brings gravity to the situation in that everyone is kind of like that's fine you don't you know it'll be all right and he's like no it really fucking won't like it will not be okay like please take this seriously it's not just some like i know he's only how old would he have been in this like he's in his early 20s michael myers in this isn't it it's like it's not just some like random dude that's broken out this is not okay hmm yeah, like, um, did, did I tell you that he killed his sister when he was, like, five? This is yeah, not... Yeah, hello! Yeah, this guy means business. And also, like, listen to me. I'm a doctor. Right. And I've got, if like... I need- <laughs> yeah, I've got an accent. I'm very serious. I've got a very serious accent. I am a doctor. It is very funny to see a psychiatrist walking around, kind of talking in very grand, dramatic ways about the nature of evil and death. Like, I love it. It's, it's just... the sher- But the sheriff takes him seriously eventually. He's kind of like, no, actually... The sheriff and Dr. Sam Loomis are both fucking drama queens and I they love them so for it. They are so dramatic. But they... also, I think they're the only adults in this film. Like, where the fuck are the adults? Like, that's a they're really... They're not there! There's no one here. I mean, it's another quite a key... Like, yeah. where are your children? You're not looking after them. There are no adults in this film. And that kind of feels a kind of... That kind of feels like a trope as well. I mean, it, it differs yes. between films, but there are definitely films that come after this, especially teen horror films, where yeah, the the parents are very much absent. Yeah, um, and even when Laurie's like running down the street, even when Laurie's running down the street screaming, people are just kind of closing their blinds to her and going, "Nope, I'm not having a part of this." So there's like a total disregard. There's no responsibility taken here. The, the parents are just a wall. Oh yeah, their parents are probably like you know 
off somewhere drinking cocktails and having <laughs> like orgies or something. Yeah, well, it's be- that kind of latchkey kid esque kind of. It's, I guess it's emblematic of its time in that way, and that mm. it's yeah, you know, kids were just. I don't know, letting themselves in and out of the house apparently around this time, just walking themselves to school, like Well I don't know. you know, it's it's American suburbia as well. Although right? to be fair, and I think we spoke about this um in our Texas Chainsaw Massacre episode as well. The seventies are kind of, you know, a big serial killer moment in the mm. United States of America. So it is it is kind of interesting that like this is the period where the slasher films the slasher film also had its first kind of golden age mm. when in the in america in particular you know i can't really speak for most america has like an outstanding amount of serial killers per capita you do. like well it is, done. it's quite <laughs> it's stuff. quite something like i can i remember listening to a podcast about it and the statistics were something like bizarre like you know with the second country with the most serial killers per capita was like i don't know 90 and then america was like 3000 it's something (laughs) absurd like that yeah (laughs) so in the 70s is where a lot of these people were were being not that they were you know killing necessarily all at that time but there was overlap between like quite deadly people Mm. and i do find it interesting like they are by themselves a lot but it's it's also a time where people were not yet culturally, I think, so afraid of people no. close to them. No, um, and this is and that's the whole that's kind of like the Ted Bundy esque thing, isn't it? Mm. Like Ted Bundy, like Mike Myers, in a way, is kind of he's he's in he's in amongst you. He's built into your community. He's one of you, and yet he's actually you know this extremely evil person. He just doesn't seem that way on the surface. And Michael Myers is kind of, you know, just a kid who who's grown up in this area and is capable of doing some like truly evil thing. It's like homegrown evil. Um, and yeah, I love, I love this idea. Actually, this is one of my favorite things about this film is this idea of evil lurking in safe spaces and that use of the sort of the suburban streets as the setting. Like, I don't, mm. I don't think I can look at a street, an American tree line street like that now and not think of Halloween. Oh, 100%. Perfectly normal, quiet, uneventful small town area with children and families going trick or treating. You know, mm. you get those amazing tracking shots at the beginning with Laurie sort of walking across town you get this real sense Mm. of kind of community and you know laurie's watching the kids trick-or-treating in the sunshine and Mm. everyone lives really close to each other they're babysitting across the road and you know it's kind of business as usual for a good third of this film it's kind of daytime and everything's very safe Mm. and you know as expected um and you know that in that entire idea of sort of the American dream that's being projected, which just completely folds in on itself. Yeah, and I love that idea of kind of danger lurking in suburbia mm. and in the home because it's really it's really quite menacing and it's quite insidious. And and it's something that will come up over and over again in some filmmakers, like David Lynch, for instance, like has the mm. great opening of Blue Velvet, where it's just this beautiful white picket fence, a picture perfect postcard of americana and then you zoom in on the grass and there's a rotting ear of someone (laughs) (laughs) and it's kind of this thing that i love of like yes everything everything can be pristine and picture perfect and kind of according to this idea of normality and perfection that has been crafted through the the this idea of the american dream but then there's 
this danger lurking in plain sight. And because you're too obsessed with maintaining this idea of Americana, you're you're not seeing the danger that's right. kind of right in front of you, right behind you in this case. Yeah, there's that parent that literally closes the curtains or whatever on Laurie screaming. It's like, no, nope, we're not facing this. Yep. This is like, no, this is this is ruining my perfectly manicured front garden. Like, I can't be dealing with this at all. And we, and we don't have to talk too much about them, but I did want to kind of ask you your thoughts about... The, f- the franchise that came after Halloween. I mean, I guess there's there's a really distinct separation between Halloween 2, which came very quickly mm. after the first one and was also made by Carpenter. Mm-hmm. Um, no, sorry. And that wasn't was made written by, Car- by Carpenter. It was written by him. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, actually, no, I think it was written by Deborah Hill. Anyway. Oh. <laughs> Um, anyway, there's a really distinct separation between like Halloween 2, which wasn't directed by Carpenter, but it did have Deborah Hill involved mm-hmm. um, as a writer and as a producer and kind of picks up directly after the ending of the first one. Mm. And then like Halloween 3, which is a completely different film and there's like witches and <laughs> stuff involved. And then, and then the franchise really began and it got really fucking weird. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. The only really connective tissue of this is always Michael Myers, and it's always Doctor Sam Loomis, right? L- Loomis is—is <laughs> is he in every single sequel? I think he is. Maybe I think Not- he is in every single sequel. Yeah, it's. I mean, I mean, I so Halloween two. No, hang on, I'm gonna start again. So I think the Halloween kind of the sequels in the entire franchise is really interesting because. Um, for for a first film that is so fantastic and kind of perfect in my eyes, really the like the sequels are pretty. They're not great. <laughs> there are many many bad kind of sequels following this film. But um, I, Halloween Two is kind of it's. I think it's okay. Like I do enjoy it for what it is. It works quite well as a as you say like as a follow on from the first film. I think it loses some of the. I mean, I feel really enamoured with the, the characters in the first film and you spend that time getting to know them and I really like them, which you kind of lose in this second film. But um, but it's still like, a, it holds up as a fairly good sequel. And then Halloween 3, I wouldn't even regard as a sequel. I like to think of that as a complete standalone. I think mm-hmm. if you go into that expecting a, a proper Michael Myers sequel, you'll be kind of sorely disappointed it's like this weird attempt to kind of anthologize yeah. the idea of halloween isn't it and um yeah like yes. different stories that take place yeah, on the night of like halloween a, feels more like a kind of sci-fi invasion invasion of the body snatchers kind of yeah. thing instead it's um yeah very so again i i quite like it but it isn't i really it, like it but it is weird um it's weird and it's fine, I think, if you if you regard it as not a Halloween. It's it's like film a, it's in the a sense standalone a, film. Yeah, like it's, it's a complete not, Yeah. Yeah. If you can regard it as completely separate, I think it's pretty good. Um then I have to admit that I I have seen Halloween four, but I don't remember it. And then Sounds I think about right. quite, yeah, I think there's a big gap in my knowledge and is there five and then h2o is that how it works i can't oh remember oh my now. good god no there <laughs> no, is four there? there is four where michael myers returns return, because yeah yeah because they figured out that season of the witch is like the anthology vibe was just not working for them it's like oh that work. yeah and then there's halloween five which is the revenge of michael myers so i've seen that one at this point um michael myers is the main the main kind of attraction point and his mm-hmm. name is included in in 
almost every every kind of title. Then my favorite one is Halloween Six: The Curse of Michael Myers. Oh, of course, which is the one with Paul Rudd and the Runes. Yes, yes, that's the Runes one. And yes. then we get H two O, which I think. <laughs> Every single subsequent iteration of the franchise has like completely erased everything that happens in H two O. I think it's quite beloved in a way as well. Yeah, I've I've got a soft spot for it. But yes, you're right. It's I don't know what it is about these films though. It just they just couldn't really nail a good sequel to Halloween for a very long time. (laughs) Like they, I think they just overcomplicated it and even though mm-hmm. like i have a soft spot for halloween 6 because it is just one of the most bizarre things yeah. i've ever seen and it's got baby paul rudd baby yeah. paul rudd who looks exactly like middle-aged paul rudd timeless. as well timeless honestly a time lord vampire just <laughs> extreme moisturizer who knows um and halloween h2 i was like h2 <laughs> halloween h20 H20. You no one ever says H20. We all say H2O. I was gonna say, is it is it H20? Yeah. No, it's not. Yeah, it's Halloween no, it's H20, 20 years later. That's the full title. I'm looking at it right now. It is the dumbest ass title I've ever seen for I a sequel. I always wondered what it had to do with like Yeah, the I elements. hope someone got That's... fired, basically. <laughs> I've always called it Halloween H2O. So do, so am I. I've just oh, okay. I figured out just now, just a second, that it's probably it's Fuck, probably I've mispronounced. Something. That makes well, a lot of sense, doesn't I'm it? not gonna I'm not gonna start calling it Halloween H twenty, that's stupid. Um <laughs> I was like, what has this got to do with water, really? I don't know. I don't know, who knows? But Laurie does come back. That was a big deal mm. for that film. Also it's um Josh Hartnett, but you know Yes. We, we will be covering Halloween H2O in the series later on because I think it's a perfect intersection of the 90s teen slasher um, yes. cycle and the original one that Halloween started in all the wrong ways. All of it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and what do you think about the the two separate? Oh god, you don't mean the Rob Zombie ones, do you? Yeah, I do mean the Rob Zombie ones. <laughs> yeah, so we had the the 2007 remake, and then... So yes, we went from sequels to remakes, reinventions, didn't we? Mm. Which which were... I mean, I, I like Rob Zombie as a musician. I've got a real soft spot for Rob Zombie, can't help it. But um, these are bad films. Yeah. Bad, bad films. Yeah. To the point where, again, I can't really remember them other than them being very bad. What I remember from... I don't think I saw his Halloween 2, which came out in 2009, but I did see yeah, Halloween from 2007. Mm-hmm. And I just remember that it kind of went the complete opposite way yeah. of Halloween, which, you know, is a choice. Um, well, it's very Rob Zombie-esque, isn't it? I mean, yeah. you wouldn't, yeah, it's Rob Zombie's not going to make a kind of, I don't know, minimalist. No, <laughs> I do remember it was like trying to over-psychoanalyze Michael mm-hmm. Myers. So it was yeah. giving him... A lot of reasons, it's very too much exploitative reasons as to mm-hmm. why he became a killer. And um, you know what? I like my serial killers without that much baggage. I like yeah. this idea of like, you know what? I'm I'm just into killing, guys. It's my thing. It's the lack of reason that's scary. Yeah, that's what's scary. Yeah, I don't. If I'm told why it happens, it's just not the same. I need it needs to just be. Yeah, you know, and I don't think Rob Zombie is the filmmaker that I want to explore what um, intense psychological childhood trauma does to a person. No, 
No. Yeah, although it does have Malcolm McDowell as Dr. Loomis, which is always a treat. Oh, I yeah. yeah. And bad times, though. It's yes. not good. No. No, would not advise. But what did you make of the David Gordon Green Halloween? I I went into that film thinking that I really, really wasn't going to like it. I was being mm. very sniffy. Probably mm. because, yes, all of these other films have not been very good. Um, And then I think it, it slightly helped that they were very... It was a direct sequel to the original. So they were disregarding all other sequels. <laughs> they are no longer canon, which was mm. quite nice. I thought, okay, I can get behind this. And of course, Carpenter had kind of given his thumbs up as well, which was like a... Um, well, just, you know, gave me slight hope. So I, do you know what I like? I gave podcasters a very bad name. Oh, I love that scene. Oh, good <laughs> Lord. I was like, hey now, we're not that annoying. Jesus Christ. Um, this, oh yeah, the podcasters in that. But do you know what? I, I, I did like it to an extent. I actually thought it was better than I expected and um i could just really get behind again laurie strode and this idea of kind of generational trauma and Mm. the fact that she was you know she's a woman whose entire life has been dictated by this horrific moment and that she's you know everyone everyone that including her own daughter thinks that she's just completely balmy but she knows that he's going to come back she's Mm. she's got that you know she's planning for it and she's getting her shit together because she knows she's the final girl and that he's going to return and so actually i liked it more than i expected Mm. what did you think i i kind of really agree with you i was very i was sniffy at first and i was very pleasantly surprised especially by the way that they treat Laurie Strode's character mm. like the basic premise as I as you mentioned it kind of disregards uh, all of the previous sequels and it kind of picks up almost directly from the first two films and mm. and it's all about Laurie and Michael and what I really loved is that you really see the intense baggage that it's left yes on Laurie yeah. And how it yeah. has affected her own family, you know, her relationship mm-hmm. with her daughter, her relationship with her granddaughter. And I think it really twists things around and kind of uh, embraces that that she's become a completely different person that she would have been if she hadn't yeah. been hunted down by Michael Myers when she was a teenager. And Absolutely. it dives into that. And I and I love that. Like I love that um respect for the for what the original was doing and kind of mm-hmm. the filmmaking aspect of that and it was updating it but kind of not really forcing you know rob zombie has a style uh and he yeah. forces it on everything whether it yes. makes sense or not yeah. and i think this was much more like there's enough nods to fans of the original mm-hmm. there's respectful homages there's obviously you know a very a much better understanding of who the characters are and Mm -hmm. where they could potentially be 40 years after the fact of, you know, the events of the first film. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and and I think that's just like better writing, better filmmaking and better understanding of what Halloween achieved. Yeah. You're completely right. I agree. Yeah. And it, and it made sense to me that that film was coming out now. Um, it felt fitting. Like I hate to stay in the wake of sort of, you know, like Me Too movement or whatever, but we are having more open conversations about like the way women experience violence from men on a daily basis. And yeah, this idea of kind of inherited trauma and the way that victims, you know, um, their whole lives are affected by these things. So it kind of, I don't know, it, it felt like a good time for that to happen as well. Does that make mm. sense? Yeah, absolutely. 
and and I'm excited to see kind of what what's going to happen in Halloween Kills. Yeah, me too. I'm really I'm really interested. Again, I feel a little bit I don't know. I should feel reassured, but I'm I'm not entirely sure. Um I do find it interesting actually. I was thinking about this like, the other day that I mean, obviously, we're very aware of the final girl trope now. and We've kind of mm-hmm. moved into this space where it's being subverted and changed to kind of reflect today's, you know, social climate or whatever. But um, we've had like more examples recently, it feels, with kind of like Fear Street and Ready or Not mm-hmm. of the final girl resurfacing. And also, a thing that I've noticed is that um, the final girls become really popular in fiction at the moment with male authors. So we've had like yes. final girls with Riley Sager, uh-huh. last final girl, Stephen Graham Jones, the uh-huh. final girl support group by Grady Hendrix. I uh-huh. mean, I haven't read all of those, but it was just a, it's merely an observation that I, it's interesting that there's a lot of like male authors at the moment writing about final girls. I find it very curious that you bring it's that odd, up. isn't it? Because I've only read one of those books. I've got the Grady Hendrix books. Um, on my on my like wish list that mm. needs to arrive at some point or I need to buy it at some point. Um but I do feel a little bit iffy because of that. Because it's, of the fact that it's always male authors. It's all man, isn't mm-hmm. it? Which I was kind of like oh. and I mean the other funny I say the funny thing, but I actually as as writers, those three writers that I've just mentioned, mm. I actually do I have read a lot of their work and I mm-hmm. enjoy their work, but I still find it a little bit odd that they are all deciding to kind of play on this final girl trope at the moment. So I don't know. I can't comment much more. I just found it interesting. that this I do. Is- I do find it interesting as well. It's something I've observed too. And actually when I, when I read the Riley Seeger novel, which is just called the final girls, mm-hmm. I believe I was under the impression and I believe the, the idea when it was being promoted at the time. Mm-hmm. And I think this was like, 2018 something yeah, like yeah. that um was that it was it was a female author oh interesting so i think originally Actually, not sure. I, I he thought... was writing an a pen name yeah. i think oh i didn't know that yeah and i think i still oh, have, have the this. um the original the proof that they sent me and mm. i i think like it was i'd have to double check but i i was definitely under the impression that it was like a female author yeah yeah it's an interest yeah really mm. interesting choice that this like idea of the final girl the last girl standing has suddenly become quite i don't know appealing not to fashionable male. but yeah very yeah. appealing to um male writers in particular i do find mm. it curious i i think there is something in there and i don't quite know why and i'd have to read the the other books yeah. but exactly. i think i do like also listen to a lot of um author-led podcasts um mm-hmm. especially kind of around the the thriller or um genre space and i think a lot of the women who are writing those stories are kind of writing about killers yeah instead yeah. of final girls <laughs> mm, interesting we've done a swap yeah oh also whole... look for that yeah there's a, a whole like PhD dissertation that needs to happen there. There's I'm not a whole do it, something <laughs> there. Yeah, no, somebody will. When you do, please email me. I would like to read it, right? but I'm not going to write it. Someone tell us very eloquently because <laughs> it's not going to be me. And Steph, before we wrap up, is there is there anything about Halloween that we haven't talked about that you wanted to to mention? I don't, I don't think so. Just that. I mean, surely everyone has seen this film right now, but by now. But I just, yeah, I think if you haven't seen it recently definitely go back and revisit it because every time i do i find something new to be quite impressed by and i just 
have so much love for this film. Absolutely. And I think like as a as a lesson in in framing and intention yeah. building, it's just you there's few films that are so tightly made right. as this. That's and that's what I want my horror films to be. I mean, I am, you know, I'm also a fan of kind of jump scares and, you know, all of the other bits and pieces. But actually, I, for me personally, the most effective horror films mm-hmm. are the ones that make you feel claustrophobic, anxious, tense. You know, they're relentless. Um, it's it's that kind of feel of feeling that I'm always kind of trying to chase when I'm watching horror films and I'm always wanting to go back for and as you say like this is just such a an iconic film for that absolutely um Steph thank you so much for your time and for your insights on Halloween and where can people find more of your work online uh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Steph X McKenna. Um, and also I'm going to give a shout out to my Stephen King zine, which is Outsider. So if you're into Stephen King, um, please do follow at Outsider Zine as well. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you.